off. And, and today, of all days, we end up at the triumphal entry, the day we celebrate that. We call it Palm Sunday. While you're turning there, I want to address something because it, it's important that I think that your pastor address certain key issues that take place. And this past weekend, I was in Mexico and praise God that we were dedicating the church in Bustamante, something that uh, a small group of our church family have, have really invested in and pushed. And it was a little church plant in a Pentecostal denomination down in Mexico, and um, for those of you who don't know, for 20 years, the drug cartel kept them out of that town, and recently, the new president of Mexico sent in the National Guard, cleaned up the town, and, and it's kind of been set right, and so we were there, we ordained two pastors, and they asked me to preach the dedication service, and I was really honored to be asked, I was even more honored to be able to carry it out, and I preached out of 2 Corinthians 5.21. On our behalf, you made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I quoted that this morning already. I preached the gospel. I just shared that, and, and it was an amazing time because my translator and I, we were kind of just going back and forth and stuff on the platform, and, and I when you when you preach with a with an interpreter you or a translator, it, it sometimes that one person becomes your focus, not everybody else. And what I found out later was uh, almost twice as many people as they had planned on showing up showed up. And so from there, about half the town of Bustamante got to hear the gospel that night. So that's, a, that's an incredible thing. That's a God thing. But while it was gone, there was a, uh, another shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, and when I got back, I, I noticed there weren't a lot of people speaking out about this. And I realized what I'm going to say might offend some people. Some of you watching online may never watch us again, and if that's the case, so be it. But here's the thing. When church leadership remains silent, the church suffers. We were told that, uh, I believe it was yesterday, was the national day to see transgender people. Well, we saw enough of them in the news this past week to get a good idea of what their agenda is. People say, why are trans men so angry? Well, I can't imagine why. They've been affirmed in their mental illness for years now. And while we love them, while we hope they come to Christ and see what it is they have done to their bodies and what they're doing to their lives. For the church to remain silent and to be cowardly on such things should not happen. I've preached on this. I've called the church to pray many times. And once again, I would tell you the words of Martin Luther says, though we be active in the battle, if we are not fighting where the battle is the hottest, we are traitors to the cause. Rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, I am born to fight against innumerable monsters and devils. That is what the call of the church is in this day. When Christians are, victimed, are victims, victimized, and we sympathize with those who are murdering them, there is a problem in our society. 
Up is down, backwards is forwards. Where do we go from there? And it's for my part, all I can do is preach. I can talk about it, teach about it, and pray about it. My job, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip the saints. And so this Wednesday, I know we have oncoming weather and all of that, but I would ask you to set aside Wednesday for fasting and praying for our nation. Actually, I would ask you to pray for three things specifically on Wednesday. I know we have our prayer list and, and all of that as well, but do this, please. On Wednesday, third, I would ask for you to pray for your pastor and your church leadership. Because I think the coming days are not too bright for the church. That's what I foresee. And we have to navigate those waters and navigate them carefully. Secondly, I would ask you to pray for God's mercy upon our nation and mercy upon his people in this nation. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. And so we ask that God and his justice rightly meet out his mercy. And on Wednesday, finally, the third thing I would ask you to pray for is his justice. The justice that I'm talking about does not necessarily seem like a good thing, but it can be a cleansing thing. And so I would ask you as a church to join me in prayer on Wednesday for those three things. If someone says, well, does your pastor address these things from the pulpit? I hope you know your pastor always does or tries to. And a pastor should. Someone gave me the highest compliment I've ever received in ministry a couple of weeks ago. They stopped by the church and they, they said someone was looking for a Bible study and they recommended coming to ours. And they said, I told them our pastor's a little socially awkward, but nobody divides scripture or explains scripture as well as he does. And I thought, praise God, they think I'm just socially awkward. Church, I try. That's all I can do. It's all your pastor can ever do. And so I would ask you to join me in prayer because we know where scripture stands on these issues and we know where our government is also standing on these issues and they do not line up right now. We pray for revival, but we need an awakening. And so with that said, if you will stand with me, we're going to read beginning in verse 1 this morning. I'm sorry if that threw you off a little this morning. I wasn't really prepared to say anything, but felt led to, to say that. So beginning in verse 1, and as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. 
Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, having cut them from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. Father, this morning, perhaps the hour is late. And as Christ inspected Jerusalem that day and inspected the temple, I pray you inspect our nation as well. And we know in the text, judgment follows. So Lord, we ask for that, but we ask for mercy upon your church. And we ask for those who are called to lead in this time, that you give them grace, mercy, and wisdom, and strength to stand where the battle's the hottest. We ask you be with this message today, that it penetrate our hearts, that you stir something within us, Father God, to draw us closer to Christ, the true King. In Jesus' name, amen. Titled this message today, Palm Monday? (laughs) That's the question mark. Palm Monday. I'll explain why I did that as we go this morning, but hopefully it's just wrong enough to itch your brain and make you remember. They say in your homiletics class, your, your title of your message should be very condensed and something that the people will remember. Well, if I change up something that you've gotten used to seeing on your calendar, hopefully you'll remember that. We look at this crowd, we look at our text, and, and the one point, the one thing we, we take away is these people had this idea of who Jesus was and, and uh, what he was capable of and where he was coming from. <laughs> yeah, we don't have a nursery anymore. We have a torture chamber. Uh, I'm kidding. I am totally kidding. We do not torture babies. If anybody's listening on the podcast later, please just know I was totally kidding and you did not see what I just saw. Uh, Okay, let's start over. Stand for the reading. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Not that far back. We look at this text, though, and what we really see is this crowd has heard that Jesus is entering Jerusalem and they think the time has come. That the king of the Jews has arrived on the scene and they have a idea of who Jesus is. And the one thing we can take away, and I hope if you're taking notes you write this down, they want to worship Jesus as we want to worship Jesus as long as he's the Jesus we want. See, we like the meek and humble Jesus riding on a donkey, but they saw him as a conquering king coming in, and they both, we both worship him until he's something else. Now, we have in our text an incredible historical event, the arrival and the coronation of Jesus of Nazareth as he enters in the Gospel of Mark for the first time into the city of Jerusalem. 
And this is a powerful scene. This is a beautiful scene. But it's gilded. It's tainted. I like how one pastor put it. He said, coronations are not humble. They are not unexpected. They are not unplanned. They are not unofficial. They are not spontaneous. They are not superficial. They are not temporary. But this one was all of those. Coronations are not to be reversed in a few days so that the one exalted and the elevated and elevated becomes rejected and executed like this one. This was no real coronation. Let it be said, Jesus is the real king, deserving of all exaltation, all honor, all worship, and all praise. But this is a false coronation of the true king. I believe it was Terry Pratchett once wrote, Be wary of the opinion of people. The same crowd who cheers at your coronation will also cheer at your beheading. And nowhere clearer do we see that in Christ's life than in this text today. The crowd who will shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, will soon cry, crucify and give us Barabbas. And somewhere in a cell sit two thieves awaiting their execution. A black man by the name of Simon of Cyrene and his two children are working their way towards Jerusalem like so many others anticipating Passover. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the siblings that once rebuked him are all in the procession behind him marching towards Mount Zion. The disciples are still likely upset with James and John for their request of status, and yet in their ears ring the words of a man named Bartimaeus who has recently regained his ability to see and oh, how beautiful things are. He's never seen things quite like he sees them today. And yet there's tension building. Things are coming to a head. Tempers are flaring. Plots are thickening. Schemes are being laid out. Traps and snares are being set. And the people, the crowd, is the only thing keeping the Pharisees from having Jesus taken in the middle of the night while he sleeps or throwing him off a cliff or, or having him hanged or stoned or stabbed. They fear the people. And the people want Jesus in this moment because Jesus has checked all of their boxes. He seems so perfect for what they want of him and what they want from him. And too often that can be said of us. All we want to do is worship Jesus as long as he's the Jesus we want. We read again in verse 1, And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. The ESV says, As they drew near. They're coming towards Jerusalem. Things are about to get good. Here we go. Mark's story thus far has been very fast-paced, though it's taken us some time to get through it. It's been very quick, but now the ball is going to begin rolling. Now things are really beginning to lift off. Not only is there a shift in the energy of Mark's gospel, a shift in the tone, a shift in the narrative, there's a shift in the story that's beginning to take place. Up until now, Jesus has tried to keep things somewhat on the down low. He's told a leper to go show the priests you've been healed, but he also told that leper to not tell anybody else. 
He's tried to keep things quiet among the Jews. And the Gentiles, he's told the demoniac, go tell others what you've seen or heard. He's told the woman at the well the same thing. But overall, Jesus has kept things quiet. In fact, the only reason he told the leper to go show himself to the priest was to confirm his healing. But the leper couldn't keep quiet. In fact, he told everybody so much to the point Jesus had to teach in the countrysides. He had to preach outside city limits. He could hardly get into a town without being overcome, if you recall. But now everything's coming to a head. He's near Jerusalem. Jesus is drawing closer to the night of his betrayal, closer to the cross, closer to his ultimate purpose. And as he draws closer, he finds himself in the suburbs called Bethany and Bethphage. These are two small towns on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And yet Mark tells us he's come to stop on the Mount of Olives. It's fitting that Jesus stops there. Well, many people don't catch it. They don't pick up on these things. They don't know what he's doing. It's unlikely the disciples even recognize the significance of where they stood in that moment. The Mount of Olives is mentioned in Zechariah. It's a place of judgment. It mentions the coming day of the Lord, Zechariah 14.4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move, shall move northward and the other half southward. The significance of where Jesus now stands in Mark's gospel is simply to say that he is that Lord. He's the one who's going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem, and their judgment begins in this moment. And to start, he chooses two disciples. I want you to notice something about these men. They are not named. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke. John omits this part of the story altogether. They're not named. Why does he send two it's a simple enough task. One man could do it. He could do it himself if he wanted to. Why not send three? Why not send all 12? Why does he send two? Again, this is a message of judgment of the day of the Lord. Likely, though it's unsaid, these two men represent the anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth in Zechariah 4.14 or the two witnesses of Revelation 11. You see, there is so much going on within this text to indicate Jerusalem is under God's judgment and they are completely unaware. The olive trees of Zechariah are not named. The witnesses of Revelation are not named. We speculate. Some will tell you that it's Elijah and Moses. Some will say it's Elijah and Enoch. Some will say it's representing the whole church. But the point is they are unnamed and all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go out of their way to not name these disciples when so many other times they would. How much more ink would it really have cost you, Luke, to just say, hey, it was James and John or Peter and, I don't know, Toby, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. He doesn't do it because the idea is these men are witnesses to the Lord's coming. They are sent ahead to prepare the way as the two witnesses of Revelation do. How's the crowd going to find out about Jesus coming to town? Because these men are going to commandeer a cult. Jerusalem's going to hear about it. And news will spread like wildfire because of these two 
unnamed disciples. Verse 2 says, And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has, has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now the village is unnamed, but we know from the context it's either Bethany or Bethphage, and most scholars seem to conclude that it was likely Bethphage because it's, it's the lesser known of the two towns. Why bring it up at all at this point? unless it had some significance. Bethphage was a, just a small town. Its name means house of unripe figs. That'll be important come next section of the text. But it's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture except in this story in the three synoptic Gospels. So Jesus says, go to this village, and as soon as you get into town, you're going to see a colt. Again, this is significant. The word colt in the Greek is either, it's the word polon. It means either a horse, a donkey, or a mule, but it's a donkey. Matthew confirms this, Matthew 21, 2. John also confirms this in John 12, 15. At first glance, when you read this the first time, you might think that Jesus is somehow commanding his disciples to commit first century auto theft. That they're just going to go in and steal this thing. That's not the case. Jesus is purposely fulfilling a 500-year-old Old Testament prophecy here. The Old Testament clearly indicates that the Messiah would come into the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey. Again, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. That's what's about to take place. The king, the king is coming to town. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here. Now some speculate that Jesus had some kind of prearranged deal that he'd paid to rent this donkey, that somehow he's, he's scheduled this. But I want to be very clear with you. There is no indication in Scripture that that's the case. There's no reason to believe that. In fact, this is Jesus' divinity and his sovereignty on display full force. He knows where this donkey is. He tells them where to find it. He tells them exactly what to say. This is Jesus again proving his divine nature. In fact, this is the first time there's no deal. There couldn't have been a deal made, at least in Mark's gospel, because Jesus hasn't been to Jerusalem yet. Why would he have made a deal about this previously? Luke will tell us that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem as a boy. John seems to indicate Jesus has gone to Jerusalem a number of times. But the point that Mark wants us to see, wants us to know, is this is not some prearranged exchange or purchase of the animal. The Messiah is commandeering a vehicle. Now, some of you have watched cop shows, uh, cop movies, and you see the guy flash his badge and say, NYPD, I'm commandeering this vehicle. And by the end of the movie, that poor guy's Porsche is trashed, Right? You've all seen that. That's kind of what's happening here, except Jesus says, the Lord has need of it. Now, if it's the Lord, the law says he has to return that thing in as good condition as whenever he found it. So if the Lord says that, there's a guarantee that it's coming back just as good as new. He's just going to ride it and send it back. So they're, they're aware and they understand 
But this is also the first time Jesus refers to himself as Curios, as master or Lord. He's sending this message because they're going to hear this and they're going to understand the Messiah is here. The Messiah is coming to town. Now Matthew's account said the colt will be with a female donkey and the disciples are to bring both. Again, this is so the Hebrew readers of Matthew's gospel will make no mistake as to the implication. This, that the audience understands the Messiah is coming. Luke doesn't mention that part at all. I think it's just assumed that Jesus being an honorable person in Luke's gospel, that he would do the right thing and send the, the donkey back. We are to understand clearly this is not an animal that was always with Jesus. It wasn't an animal that the disciples purchased. Its purpose and its placement is foretold by Christ himself when the disciples are sent to retrieve it. And so they do. Now, while they're away, John's gospel is going to pull back a curtain and it's going to give us some insight into what happens as the disciples are gone. John 12, 1 says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, John does not tell us the story about how Jesus gets the donkey. The synoptic gospels give us that look, but John is giving us some more information as to the chronology of this week. Something very important to the narrative. Six days before the Passover would be Saturday. And Jesus has come to Bethany, to the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. This is when Mary anoints Jesus' feet with a pound of expensive ointment and wipes his feet with her hair. And Judas gets mad because the ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And John tells us why Judas gets so huffy about that. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take from what was put into it. This happens on a Saturday. On the Saturday, Jesus sent the men to go get the donkey. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment. Just tuck that away in your mind for a second, okay? Verses 4 and 5, And they went away, and they found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? Now hold on a second, because we could just breeze through these passages and, and on to the next, but we, we should pace ourselves. We should take our time. Where did they find the colt? It was tied to a door. That can't be significant. Actually, it is. The word tied could also be understood as tethered. Why does that matter? Because it, again, fulfills prophecy. Not prophecy from Zechariah, something much older. It's all the way back to Jacob's prophecy over his son Judah. In Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Again, we see this idea that Jesus is coming in the authority of his ancestor Judah, and by that, the line of kings. There's no mistake about who Jesus is. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we're to see he's not only fulfilling the words of, of Zechariah, he'll not only fulfill the words of Isaiah, but of Jacob, all the Old Testament prophets. 
And riding in a donkey, despite what modern culture tells us about kings, how they should fly on private jets and ride in Rolls Royce cars and things of that nature, riding on a donkey in the Jewish mindset was a very kingly act. The donkey was a royal animal during the time of King David. Now, after David, even though the law prohibited the king from owning many horses, horses will become the the mode of transportation for Solomon and all of his descendants. It's, it's kind of how they kept breaking the law and drawing farther from God. It's a symbol there. But the donkey was a sign of David's line. If Messiah is to be the king in the line of David, he would not come on horseback. He would ride in humility in the likeness of David as Jesus rides on the donkey. Jesus knew the message he was sending that day. He knew exactly what he was doing as he rode that donkey into Jerusalem. And so did the crowd. Verse 6 says, They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. When the disciples leave, everyone who has just heard them, they're going to start an uproar. The news is going to begin to spread like wildfire. The most spontaneous parade in history is about to take place. And while the disciples are possibly only a few hundred yards away from Jesus at this point, the amount of time it takes them to get back, the words they told in Bethphage are going to reach Jerusalem and preparation will be made. They told them what Jesus had said. And his choice of words tells the whole world who he is. But it also proclaims what he's like. Zechariah's prophecy describes him as righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. Jesus is going to ride in peacefully. 700 years prior, Isaiah would refer to him as the Prince of Peace. When Jesus is born, what do the angels tell the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. He's coming in peace. He's coming in humility. And while the crowd will shout and cheer, that is not who they want him to remain. That's not what they'll want him to do. They believe he's riding into town to overthrow Rome, when instead he's riding into town to overthrow Satan's hold on the world. He's riding into town to cast down sin, not tear down Roman castles. He's riding into town to set slaves free, yes, but men can still wear chains and be free in their heart if they understand the true reason Christ came to Jerusalem that week. And the crowd will love him, and they'll sing his praises as long as he remains the Jesus they want him to be. But here we pick up again in the Gospel of John. John tells us, Then the large crowd from the Jews learned that he was there. Well, I wonder how they heard Where'd they get that information at? Possibly the two disciples who went and picked up a donkey. And they came not because of Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Now, a large number, possibly around 2 million Jews, had swarmed this area for Passover. And they're hearing about this Jesus and this guy Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead. I've not seen one of those guys before. I better check that out. So the crowd's going to come find Jesus. 
Bethany is only about two miles east of Jerusalem, so it's maybe a 20, 30-minute walk. Not that big of a waste of time. Not a big deal. But John's going to give us some insight into the chief priests as well. The chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Poor Lazarus. What did he do? He came out of the grave. So Saturday, Jesus sends the disciples to Bethphage to get this colt. Sunday, all the people from Jerusalem swarm to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. This is important to the chronology of the story because if the triumphal entry happens on a Sunday, we're missing a day's events in the middle of the week. Now, some will call that uh, Silent Wednesday, but this is why I've titled the message Palm Monday. Because Silent Wednesday doesn't really make sense. You're telling me in the most important week in human history, there's just a whole day we just don't talk about? That doesn't make sense. If we look at the Gospels correctly and we get the chronology right, it's really Palm Monday. Now you may be saying, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? Pastor Jeff, you're just digging up semantics to have something to say. No, I'm not. Because if you understand Mosaic law, a sacrificial lamb was selected for Passover and it was set to be the 10th of the month of Nisan. In the year 30 AD, when most people agree Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan was on a Monday. You understand that's when the sacrificial lamb came to town. The Lamb of God will be crucified on the 14th on a Friday. So in an actual calendar day, calendar week, the Mosaic Law, he came on a Monday. On Tuesday, as we'll see, Jesus will return to Jerusalem. He's going to curse a fig tree. He's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to go back to Bethany. On Wednesday, he'll get into an argument with the leaders of Israel. He'll give his sermon on the second coming, and Judas will begin to plot his betrayal. On Thursday, the disciples prepare for Passover. He'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll get arrested. He'll be tried. And on Friday... what we call Good Friday, the best Friday. Our Savior will be crucified. On Saturday, he will rest in the grave, and on Sunday, he will rise. That's what awaits us this week, this Easter week. It's a rough outline for the next few months or however long it's going to take us to finish the Gospel of Mark, too. But we go back to our text, verse 7. They, they brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their garments on it, and he sat on it. So they bring the colt back to Jesus, but notice what they do. They put their cloaks on the donkey. They make their own saddle for him. Now remember, we learned from the story of Bartimaeus, a cloak is a big deal. It's a man's blanket. It's a man's jacket. It's the one thing in this life he, he didn't give up very easily. It's the one thing you could not borrow without any anticipation to give back. Yet the disciples say to Jesus, here, take all that I have left. And sit on it so that the king will ride in comfort. The Messiah doesn't ride like a pagan king. He rides with the robes of those who serve him, propping him up. Rome would have loved to arrest any threat to their seat of power. The Romans would have taken prisoner any man or even woman who claimed to be a Jewish royalty. But no one would expect a man who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the king of the Jews, no one would expect them to come riding so willingly 
so humbly, so peacefully into Jerusalem unarmed. In fact, to do so would be to expect death. But that's the thing about Jesus. And unless we take the time to get to know him, unless we understand his word, unless we hold him close to our hearts, we willingly follow him, unless we too say, here, take all that I have, he will always be the Jesus we worship for who we want him to be. He'll never be to the distant disciple, to the part-time listener, to the one who chooses to be a fan and not a follower. He'll never be the Jesus he was meant to be. There will always be a misunderstanding. Such a person wants to worship Jesus as long as he's the Jesus they want. Verse 8 reads, And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, having, the, having cut them from the fields. Why would the crowd spread their cloaks? Why would they spread their coats? To make a red carpet? Some one commentator suggested that, but that's not the case. This is actually a gesture from the ancient world. It was one that said that whoever was to walk on it, the person who owned the cloak, it was their way of saying, I am so far beneath you, and you are so far higher than I am. It's the way they recognized his royalty. And in Jesus' case, it's how they recognized his deity. We see this happen in 2 Kings 9, the coronation of Jehu, when they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. They're understanding that God has chosen this man for this time. He is the ruler. What the people are doing are insisting Jesus is the king of the Jews. I said a few weeks back, the religious leaders knew exactly who Jesus was, and yet they still wanted him dead. This passage today tells us, so did the people who worshipped him that day. They'll wave palm branches. It's interesting to note John's the only one who ever calls them palm branches. It's unique to John's writing. The Johannin literature, it comes up again in Revelation 7, 9. He calls them palm branches. I bring that up because it's important to know John has his own unique style of writing. Noting these things, it's evidence it's the same writer of both the gospel and Revelation, but it's also important to understand what these branches signify. The palm branches themselves symbolize joy. They symbolize salvation. Jesus has taught with authority. He's healed the sick. He's fed them, at least 5,000 of them. And now he's entering the city. He stood up to the religious leaders. He's pushed back. He's openly spoke to them the deep things of God that the Pharisees have kept hidden from them. He's touched the lepers. He's talked about children and their importance. He's, he's taught women the same as he's taught men. And he's been the Jesus they've wanted. And now, surely this is the king of the Jews who will restore Israel, right? And so they sing in verse 9, it says, And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is actually a Jewish prayer. It's a one-word prayer. It simply just means save now. Save now. Here it is said to welcome the Savior, that he would save them now. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's, that's the way pilgrims would greet each other, specifically during, during Passover. It's from the Psalm, Psalm 118.26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. Some translations, the very next verse mentions waving of leafy branches. It's sung at every Jewish festival, again, especially at Passover. Now the title, the one who comes, or he who comes, that's not necessarily an Old Testament messianic title, but it carries that implication in, in Jesus' era in the Jewish mindset. We see it in the New Testament with John's disciples whenever they approach Jesus. They say, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? The people say it of Jesus. Therefore, when in, in John 6, 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So though, make no mistake, they understood who Jesus truly was. In this moment, they accept him for who he is. They know his family line. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Only Mark records that, by the way, the acknowledging Jesus is bringing the kingdom that was promised from the shoot of Jesse, the descendant of David, Jesse being David's father. The crowd believes Jesus' arrival is going to spark some kind of military coup, some revolution of sorts, that he's about to banish the Roman forces to excommunicate them from the promised land. And oh, how they worship him. How they sing, how they danced in the streets that day. Because in this moment, this spontaneous coronation, this Palm Monday parade, he's the Jesus they've craved. He's the Messiah they've wanted. But notice how the section of scripture ends. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. You're telling me because it's getting dark, Jesus is done? Wait a second. Where are the pitchforks and the torches? Where's the cannons? Wait, they didn't have cannons back then. Where's the, where's the stirring, the, the rousing speech? Jesus looks around. All right, guys, I'm going to bed. It's basically what just happened. He goes to the temple. He looks around at everything, it says. He's walking around the temple. He's inspecting it, really. He's taking note of all the things, all the things going on, the conditions of the temple, and Jesus is not going to like what he sees. But it's late. And since it's late, well, he's got Tuesday. So he returns to Bethany, to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Bethany is a safe place. It's far enough out that he could avoid any premature, sudden arrest. At least for now, Jesus will be safe. But the question is, will Jerusalem be safe from him? They've worshipped him. They've wanted him. But soon they're going to find out he may not be the Messiah they thought they, they were getting. He's not going to bring sunshine and rainbows. He's bringing judgment. He's bringing wrath. And worst of all, the wrath that will be poured out upon himself on the cross. 
I'm going to move to close in just a moment. I'm going to ask the musicians to go ahead and come back up. So many people have a view of Jesus that Scripture does not paint. Scripture doesn't promise. There are those who say Jesus always heals, yet in John 5, Jesus walks past a multitude of hurting, sick, lame, blind, and withered to heal a man who has no clue who he is. There are those who preach and teach that if you just come to Jesus, life will be better, life will be easier. He'll give you all you ever wanted. And Jesus says to follow him, we have to be willing to lose everything we have in order to gain anything from him. There are those who say Jesus is only a teacher, was only a man. He was a created thing. And yet John says in the beginning, he was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. If Jesus is not the... the, Jesus, who scripture tells us he is, then he's not a God worth serving. But if he is the God scripture assures us he is, he's worth everything. The question becomes like the coronation he had when he arrived in Jerusalem is the coronation that occurs in our heart just as real or just as false. So many times we receive Jesus, we want Jesus, and he steps into our lives and we receive him with joy, with celebration. But when things get hard, when he doesn't answer the prayers the way we thought he should have, the way he should have, when he should have, where he should have, how and all that, he's not the Jesus I bought into. When we read the word and he says hard things that we don't like, well, that doesn't, I'm just going to skip over that because that doesn't seem like the Jesus I like. We begin to doubt. I want to tell you today, he is still the king of kings. He's still the one worthy of all our praise. He's still worthy of throwing our cloaks on the ground and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On that Palm Monday, he rode on a donkey. But soon, and I do mean soon, I will believe I believe he is returning on a horse. Revelation says he's returning on a white horse and his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems having a name written on him which no one knows except himself and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood his name is also called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean are following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty and he has on his garment and on his thighs a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, he's the same person and he's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our worship. Will you stand with us together as we worship and end the service this morning?